to the Metal Hammer podcast, episode 137. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Lovely to uh, have you all with us. I am Merle from Metal Hammer magazine. Hello, 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 hello. Joining me today is the one and only deputy editor of Metal Hammer, Miss Eleanor Goodman. How are you doing, Elle? I'm okay, thanks, Merle, given 2020. How are you? <laughs> I, too, am okay, given 2020. I would say... By 2020 standards, I'm a solid 7 out of 10 today, which is fine. <laughs> I'll take that. Uh, also joining us is the one and only Mr. Stephen Hill. How are you doing, Steve? Uh, I'm all right, mate. I didn't know I had to grade how I felt out of 10, though. So I might need a bit of time because scoring things out of 10, you can't just give an arbitrary number, can you? You have to really think about it. So I'm fine, but I'm uh, sort of light six to maybe a low seven fine, but I'll come back to you on that later That's on. Let's see if we can get that number up as the uh, as the podcast progresses. Um, we got loads to talk about today. New releases coming out, stuff going on all over the place. Big album of the week, some great questions from our lovely readers and listeners. Um, before we get to all that, though, the latest issue of Metal Hammer is out right now. It is a 50-year celebration of the one and only Judas Priest world exclusive interview with all five members of the band. Uh, some very candid stuff about their career and about the future in there. Uh, we got stuff on Mastodon in the new issue. We got Devil Driver in the new issue. Uh, System of a Down, Greg Pusciato, Mr. Bungle, Perry Farrell, uh, Sepultura, Ghost Main, Lamb of God, Ramstein, Amaranth, Evil. All the good and heavy stuff is in there. It's out right now. Get it in your local store in the UK or uh, pick it up from tinyurl.com slash gethammer if you want it delivered straight to your house or flat or wherever you may reside. Uh, God, I don't even know where to start with all this uh, All this stuff that's been going on next week. I feel like the biggest thing is the news that architects are back, which is good. Lovely, lovely stuff. Um, it seems like at the same time a million years ago and not that long ago at all that Holy Hell was, was out. Uh, but they have a brand new album coming out. We've heard the first single off that. The new song is called Animals. What are we saying about the uh, the new Architects track? Stephen. It's all right. It's all right. Um, I don't really like, particularly with a band like Architects, I don't really like to judge something too much on the strength of a single song. I wouldn't like to go, oh, well, uh, it's quite melodic and it sounds um, uh, a bit more kind of polished and radio friendly than maybe I like Architects to be in the main. Um, ergo, I'm not going to like the new album. I don't like doing that and I'm not going to do that. But I, I mean, I thought it was, I think, and I think it's a decent song. I think the thing is, if there is a vague bit of criticism is that, a lot of I always thought architects are kind of above and beyond most of their peers, and I thought this sounded at some points a bit like a lot of other bands. Um, and I just think they're better than that. I'm sure there'll be stuff on the album that will be that will showcase why they're better than those bands. But you know, it's a, it's an absolutely fine big sort of radio rock stroke metal song, and nothing more. I would say. Okay, interesting. What did you think of it, L? I obviously love it because I've said before about that I love architects and I'm obviously very excited about stuff all the time. So obviously love it. But I do agree with you in the fact that it's very much radio friendly. 
I feel like you could swap Sam out for Ollie Sykes and it could be a Bring Me the Horizon song and it wouldn't surprise me that it was a Bring Me the Horizon song. I think it's very much on that more commercial end of things of what they do. Um, and like you said, Steve, we're talking about the rest of the record. I'm kind of hoping that they've still got their architects thing. I'm still, I love the song. I think it's really good but I'm still hoping they've kind of got their own character on the album because I think this song, like I said, you could maybe swap out Sam and it could still be someone else. And I just think I don't want them to lose what makes Architects, Architects, that kind of Architects spark. But I love the song and I've listened to it on repeat, obviously. So it's good. I think that's, I think that's fair. It's definitely, I mean, there's no two ways about it. It's definitely uh, a kind of continuation of some of the more polished and, um, maybe I don't want to say commercially friendly because I don't think it feels like an unnatural evolution for them, but it's definitely a, a continuation of some of the more polished sides of what we saw on Holy Hell. Um, I like the kind of little bit of, of industrial stomp that's in there. I feel like that's a slightly different thing for them. That's quite cool. I think the chorus is super catchy. It was stuck in my head all day after they first dropped the track, which is always a good sign. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I think Architects are definitely a band where you need to hear stuff in the context of the album. Um, I felt like that certainly with the singles off the last record as well. So I think we'll get a better idea of uh, of what the next chapter of Architects is going to sound like. The album is going to be called For Those That Wish to Exist. It's out February 26th um, and you can order, uh, you can pre-order that album now via Architects uh, website. Uh, so yeah, very, very cool to have that band back and fascinated to see where they can go from, you know, headlining Wembley on the net on the last album, which was an amazing moment for them. Steve's pointing at me. What's what? What I just wanted to say, I think architects are in a well, I was going to say, no, not a perilous position. I think architects are in a this this album. I mean, I think it's a really, really big ask to follow up the last three albums because you've got Lost Together, Lost Forever, which was this kind of massive comeback album. You had All Our Gods Are Have Abandoned Us, which is this, you know, the kind of the swan song for the late great. Tom Searle, and then you've got their reaction to that in Holy Hell. So those are really, really emotionally captivating records. And they don't have that context around them, surrounding them. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how they navigate, you know, this unbelievable run they've been on with, you know, it, in this case, it really is going to come down to just the music, isn't it? Because all that other stuff is has kind of gone away. And, you know, that's uh, that's just what it is, really. But I think it's going to be an interesting thing to see where they go and what they do, um, trying to top those three albums, which in kind of each of them on the, on their own merits and with their own context have been just totally unique in a lot of ways, I think. Yeah. I think this one's going to take that environmental theme more and run with it. They've written, obviously, about it loads and talks about Sea Shepherd, and I think this one's going to go bigger on it because, obviously, this single as well is basically saying human beings aren't really great, are they? We kind of mess stuff up. Yeah. But I'm curious about... I, I can't remember. Do you guys remember if Holy Hell was completely written from scratch or if they had kind of bits and pieces left over from previous sessions? Because that very much felt like a continuation of what they'd been doing before, whereas this feels like they have taken a turn. Well, I think uh, I, I, had bits of Tom in it, didn't it? I think. So, yeah, there was bits left over, I believe. It's it's interesting, actually, because I've always kind of... I thought of Holy Hell as a bit of a... I don't know if a departure is quite, quite fair to say, but I did feel like when it came out, 
it was at least an evolution from the other two albums before. For me, in my mind, like Lost Lost Forever, Lost Together, and All Our Gods Have Abandoned Us are really like kind of uh, musically and just kind of maybe not quite thematically because it's not quite the same thing, but they just feel very similar. They, t- they feel like two sides of kind of the same very turbulent and difficult chapter in Architects' uh, career. And it felt like Holy Hell was a slight kind of shift onwards from that. But I think you're both right. Like, actually, in hindsight, those albums kind of represent a little triarch in Architects' career. That they And this next album is now a clean, maybe not quite a clean slate, because obviously those things that have affected them, the death of Tom and everything, they're still going to be something that's always going to be a part of their identity and, and musicality. But I think that this is a, a, a significant next step now. And and I agree, like, you know, like I said, headlining Wembley felt like the kind of crowning achievement of that period of Architect's career. And now it's what comes next. Uh, so I'm fascinated to know what comes next. And uh, yeah, as I said, we'll all find out on February 26th when the album drops. So hopefully we're in for something very, very, very special indeed. Certainly have faith. Um, feels like great British young bands releasing new songs is a bit of a thing this week. We've got a new Employed to Serve track as well. Uh, have we had a listen to Parties Over? What do we think of it? I love it. It's very, um, I thought you would say that, Steve, because it's quite 90s alternative, isn't it? Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. like it reminded me of like Elastica a little bit and like, like, yeah, you know, like what's that really famous song? Um, um, the what? Connection. Yeah, it, there's a little bit of that in there. And then it also reminded me of like early 2000s, like Reuben, that song Scared of the Police. I don't know why. Um, but obviously it sounds like Employed to Serve, but she's singing on it like a lot more. And it kind of sounded more alternative to me than metal, although obviously it's got a well metal chorus. I think it's really good. Yeah, I really like it. I, I mean, um, Employed to Serve have been, it's a sort of fascinating journey that they've been on, I think, actually, because starting off as that very kind of chaotic, Dillinger-y, mathy, converged-style hardcore, and then the last record, I mean, I compared it a lot to kind of Far Beyond Driven era Pantera, just big, like, 4-4 stomp, and they talked about the influence of new metal on that record as well, so I was a bit like, where'd you go from here? And, yeah, adding melody, but kind of, like you say, really... 90s grungy sort of melody and a bit of a sort of downer vibe but also huge riffs and when sammy comes in excellent i really there, like it there was a little bit you mentioned new metal there there was a little bit of static x black and white i thought as well just like a little touch of that in there <laughs> that is a mad mix ruben static x and elastica i mean i don't know maybe that's just my brain but that's what yeah. i was getting from it and and on and and on an employed to serve song. <laughs> Amazing. Uh yeah, I think I think it's a very cool track. I think those are all very uh um uh, uh solid uh reference points as well. And that's all obviously out now. You can go check that out over on all your usual streaming platforms and that. Um and there's a new while she sleeps song uh which is called Sleep Society and has been uh, released in kind of honor of this new, um, is it actually on Patreon is it, or is it a kind of? It's Patreon, yeah. They've got a Patreon link and they've got various awards tiers. And it looks, because, well, I've cut you off, Merlin. Sorry, you carry on. 
No, it's cool. I wanted I wanted to because I wanted to double check. Um, so yeah, Sleeps have kind of released a new Patreon system. Uh, kind of a slightly I wouldn't say like a a brand new way of doing things, but they've really embraced this kind of like paying for premium content from bands thing. So there's as I said, there's all these different tiers and and things that you can subscribe to to get different things from the band, um, things like merch and exclusive content and all the rest of it. Uh, they've also released a new uh a new track in honor of that called sleep society which is the name of the kind of the club they've set up um what do we think of the song and what do we think of the uh of this new this new um you know brand that they've added to the sleep's name i think it's cool and not really surprising when you look at what they've been doing in the last few years we did a big feature a couple of years back or maybe it was more recently than that on the last record about how they've got this warehouse in sheffield and how they've turned it into a studio where they can shoot their own videos, make their own songs, have young bands over to shoot their videos and make their own songs, and kind of have this hub where they can be very self-sufficient and bring other people alongside them. And this really fits into that ethos. It's a way of making the band sustainable and sharing their knowledge and information in a way that they benefit from financially and the next generation benefits um, from it as well and so it's kind of surprising they've not already done it but I mean I guess now in the pandemic is kind of the time to really be um, ramping up these efforts because like they say in the beginning of the song you know we don't know where touring's going to come back artists only get a tiny cut from streaming revenue what they're doing is an absolutely sensible and admirable ad admirable ad admirable approach but um, yeah, like you said, Patreon isn't new and there's a lot of bands doing it at the moment. You know, Twin Temple are doing it, Alien Weaponry are doing it. Um, there's plenty of other bands doing it. I think maybe none of them have had like a big marketing push on it. You just kind of notice when you go on their Facebook pages or if you're signed up to their email list, you kind of notice these bands have got Patreon accounts. But I think the slight difference with the Sleep Society one is that it does seem to be geared more towards up and coming bands and musicians. So they've got rewards, which encompass things like um, early gig ticket sales or special merch, but they've also got things that encompass um, songwriting and kind of the practical skills of being in a band. And if you look at that video as well for the song Sleep Society at the end, it finishes with a kid watching the music video on his laptop. And it's kind of like, here's the next generation of people who are excited about music. So. I'd say in the way that it differs from other bands' campaigns is that they've done it with this massive push with an actual song to advertise it. And it does seem to be geared at kind of the next generation, which is a really cool thing. Lovely. Yeah. That is a good, good. Well. Now go on, Steve. I was going to say, the song's good as well. Yeah, the song is good. I like it a lot. It's uh, it's very sleeps. It's right in their wheelhouse. Mm. I think it, it carries over a bit of the kind of electronic -y elements yeah. that were kind of all over the last album yeah um but yeah sleep i mean sleeps have been so hands-on with working with their fans and trying to like have a real direct relationship with their fans um you know the last album they kind of built that whole uh i don't know was the album before that the album where they first built the big kind of studio up in sheffield and kind of did everything themselves yeah, been that, doing was that was you are we yeah um they've been doing that a while and uh it's definitely a continuation of that, which is really cool to see. Always happy to see While She Sleeps on it. Uh, on a totally different bent from uh, young British bands uh, doing doing their thing, uh, one of the most American of all American metal bands has released 
and controversial new video for Living the Dream. This is a song taken off this year's uh, Fate album, uh, an album which I liked. I think I reviewed that one, didn't I? No, I did. Oh, did you? Yeah, you reviewed this one. Sorry, they really got they released so many, don't they? Um, <laughs> God, they are terrific. Such a prolific band. Uh, yeah, Steve gave the album a very good review. We saw them at Wembley earlier in the year. They were fucking great. Um, but Five Fingers have always had these kind of interesting and never fully defined uh, political kind of slants um, that are kind of kind of come to the fore in this new video for Living the Dream. Um, the video ha- is kind of basically all takes place in uh, one of the founding fathers kind of weird nightmarish daydream where everything's kicking off stuff's getting blown up and and, and smashed up uh, there's a kind of totalitarian political figurehead um making people wear masks and uh there's all this shit going on basically um so live live wire uh kind of released uh, a uh, a piece on the on the video kind of saying that it seemed like there was a lot of anti-mask sentiments in the video um obviously the anti-mask movement is quite a, a kind of big conspiracy thing that's going on around the world right now um it's obviously not good and uh it's probably made a few people quite rightly uncomfortable to see a, a major bands kind of promoting that but uh zoltan then put out his own statement denying that it was an anti-mask uh, video. Uh, Zoltan uh, Zoltan Bathory, guitarist for Five Finger of course, said as much as some news sites use anti-mask as a clickbait title, let's make this crystal clear. In a fictional story amongst shopping cart zombies Tide Pod eating fat superheroes and all other metaphors all those things are in the video as well why would anyone think the mask scene isn't one the scene is quite in question is not about the masks, it's not an anti-mask message the mass segments are about hypocrisy on the highest level. Uh, and then he goes on to kind of talk about dictatorships and totalitarian regimes, um, not, you know, not wanting to be kept under the thumb and living in fear of our own governments. Um, and then he kind of ends this statement saying, we, the people, must do everything in our power to stay as a free society. We must prevent the rise of tyranny in all shapes and forms. We must resist the would-be dictators and the totalitarian ideals. I mean, this is quite a loaded video isn't it at the very least they put this thing out and you know zoltan's obviously said people have misunderstood but there's a lot going on here and i'm maybe not too surprised that it's kicked up a fuss i think there's a line there sorry that you missed out in this quote which i think was quite important he says when the rules are made for you but those who made them are exempt and there's a big show in the video of that about the fact that the woman going around telling everyone what to do has got a badge on saying exempt um because i think what he said you can understand why he said it because he's basically saying question authority and don't let things be imposed on you that you don't want. But I think the issue here is that we're at such a flashpoint in the world in 2020 and in the pandemic that it does come across like it is an anti-masking video. And, And I think that's, you know, I can see why that's been a very uncomfortable issue for people it's one thing to say question your leaders and don't let them get away with um stuff that isn't good for people without questioning it and you know if there's one rule for everybody people you know why are these leaders exempt from it but it's another thing to kind of put out something that does look very strongly anti-mask at a time when there's a large 
proportion of people saying that masks could really prevent the spread of a very major infection. Yeah, I think um, the thing about making a piece of art a lot of the time is that once it's out, your intention, and I'm, you know, I'm not, I have no reason to doubt Zoltan Bathory's explanation and intention of it for being honest, but how people interpret that is not really up to you, unfortunately. And we've seen it in a lot of things, many, many songs and albums and movies and all kinds of stuff over the years, people's interpretations of certain things. I think it's very difficult not to interpret that video as A, probably giving the message that it is some sort of anti-mask sentiment on some level, and B, just being a bit of a mess, really. I mean, I would never tell artists what they should and shouldn't talk about or sing about, but I do really think that, you know, there's some things that I just don't really know about, so I'm I'm not going to go on like a, a quantum physics podcast because I don't know anything that much about it, and I do think Five Finger Death Punch have stretched to the point uh, where I'm, I mean, I don't really know if Five Finger Death Punch are the band qualified to really be bringing those kind of messages to people. Do you know what I mean? I think um, I've got no beef with Five Finger Death Punch, but it's a bit cat-handed at the very least, shall we say. Yeah, I think I agree with you on the fact that it's like a bit of a mess. Like, like you said about his explanation, and like I was saying earlier, you can kind of understand people saying question authority and think about how you live your life. But it's, yeah, it's not very clear exactly what the video is doing. And the end of it is just basically let's all have a riot. But it seems like they're not really rioting against anything. They're just taking off their masks because they feel like it's infringed a freedom or something. That's kind of what it looks like at the end. Swing and a miss, isn't it? Swing and a miss, lads. <laughs> yeah it's it's a weird one because you know i know that uh you know there's been a lot of reactions to this video um the excellent paul brannigan who's who's currently uh working as our news editor at lauda kind of did a kind of fun piss takey uh take on the video um maybe questioning how deep the the uh allegories within it really go um but yeah they're a funny one five finger death punch like i think they're a great band and uh you know we've had them on the cover only last year um uh musically i love what they do i think if it was easy to do what five finger death punch did there'll be a lot more metal bands that formed in the last 15 years headlining wembley arena to be quite frank um uh but they are yeah they're just sometimes a complex band to wrap your head around in terms of what they stand for i mean zoltan i think people some i think sometimes zoltan doesn't get a lot of credit for how smart and interesting a guy he actually is um you know he grew up in communist hungary and he's so he's therefore got some quite complex and potentially combustible views about communism what that stands for um however when that feeds down into tons of people on five on the kind of you know i was looking at the youtube page for this video the other day and you've got all these people kind of going ah oh, this video's showing the commies and the snowflakes what's up i just think well, somewhere, somehow, the, either some messaging's got lost here or the messaging isn't what people say it is or it's just, as you guys said, a bit of a mess. Like, And I'm just not convinced that um, it's quite what... It's I'm not, I'm not, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, it's interesting what 
issues or messages they will weigh in on and which ones they don't like you know what are they comfortable coming out with and what are they not comfortable with like we've seen them kind of sing about the troops and kind of say you know we're not I can't remember what they said now. I think they're not necessarily trying to put a political message over when they do that. They're just saying they support people who are in the armed forces, you know. But then they haven't ever done a thing that's weighing in on like Roe versus Wade or something. Do you know what I mean? It's like, mm. it's very kind of, seems very selective in which issues they decide yeah. to them and which ones to sing about. And a lot of the issues as well seem to come from a very male place. Yeah, that's understandable. And so, I think I think I don't know. Yeah, I think it's just a bit messy, really. I think I agree with you, Steve. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is that a lot of the times, and I and I'm not uh I'm not putting this on five finger death punch personally. I'm talking more about a lot of the opinions that I'm seeing expressed in response to this video. Um and not to go down too far down an actual kind of political hole, but it, it is weird to me how a lot of uh, people and artists and whoever else that kind of do this kind of like rally against authority at all costs and rally against totalitarian regimes and blah 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 we have to stand up and fight for our freedoms it's weird like when you look at what's going on in america right now and some of the kind of uh traits that the current regime uh actually displaying it's weird that they're not often more openly directed at that but they're often directed at this kind of imaginary like elite that are kind of running everything. Again, I'm not, I'm not talking about Zoltan and five finger death punch here specifically, but this is the way in which this video has been interpreted by a lot of people. And it just seems a bit weird to me that rather than rally against an actual existing sitting current regime that is exhibiting some worrying signs of this kind of stuff, it's more about, you know, puppet masters and all this kind of hijinks. It's cosplay a bit revolution, isn't it? What cosplay revolution? Yeah, I mean, it, it is like at the end. Yeah, yeah, they're all like kind of running around, waving flags and going, and you just think, I don't know. But again, I think I'm I'm not convinced that uh, Zoltan. I mean, we talk about Zoltan a lot. He definitely feels like the driving force and the brains behind a lot of this band. I think that's fair to say. And I, and I'm not convinced that Zoltan's political beliefs and opinions are as black as white black and white as everyone tries to make out as, as many critics of the band will try and make out that they are but i'm also not sure that they've landed whatever this messaging was so that's an interesting one it's something i'll definitely be interested to pick the band's brains about and maybe we'll get the chance to do that at some point to actually see what the hell is going on there uh, so yeah there we go um in <laughs> In increasingly weird news, uh, I'll, I can't believe I'm, I'm saying this. Well, maybe I can actually. Fuck it. Miley Cyrus is apparently doing a Metallica covers album. Um, now, obviously, uh, we know that Miley has got some pretty good track record with rock music. You know, she put in a great showing at the Chris Cornell tribute gig and she's done, I think, a cover of Nothing Else Matters by Metallica before that was pretty good. Um, but she has now said in a conversation with Interview Magazine, uh, that uh, she said, we've been working on a Metallica cover album and I'm here working on that. We're so lucky to be able to continue to work on our art during all of this. Uh, at first it felt uninspiring and now I've been totally ignited. So she's saying she's working on a Metallica covers album. I don't know if it's all her own thing or if it's going to be a 
a thing lots of different artists are doing together. I don't know what, like, what's going on? This year gets weirder and weirder. Uh, I don't know. Sounds good though, right? Well, I'm excited about it because I actually think, you know, we talk all the time about how metal isn't in the mainstream enough. And I always think that if people heard metal or introduced to metal in the right way, they'd really like it. Like, just literally going on my own experiences, I guess, as somebody who had never heard of metal and then new metal came along and I'm like, oh, metal's good. You know, and if Miley Cyrus can take the metal message to more people, then I'm all for it. Yeah, me too. Uh, I'd be quite interested to hear that. Miley Cyrus has got a good voice. I'd be interested to know what songs she picks. I mean, it can't be worse than Avril Lavigne doing Fuel back in the Metallica MTV icon when we're at like 2003. Um if you remember that. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I don't know what people, people are get annoyed about it. It's like, she can, if she wants to cover Metallica, then I'm glad that she wants to cover Metallica rather than, I mean, I'd rather there was a Miley Cyrus album covering Metallica than Miley Cyrus covers fucking, I don't know, the Carpenters or something. Like, who wants to hear that? No one. Or Metallica covering Miley Cyrus. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be that fussed about that either, to be perfectly honest. Purely because I think Miley Cyrus will probably do a better job covering Metallica than Metallica would covering Miley Cyrus, to be honest. Exactly. But, yeah, like people will get to hear Metallica songs in some sort of form, and that's cool. I think, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it, I think it once again pertains to this thing about metal in the mainstream. And I think that MTV Idol thing is a really good example of that. In the early 2000s, a flagship major... I mean, it was still a music channel, but let's just call it a flagship major channel. <laughs> um, has an event in which people like Avril Lavigne and fucking Snoop Dogg was one of them, wasn't it? Snoop yeah. Dogg was doing fucking Metallica covers. Like, that's unimaginable that something like that would happen now for a metal band, unless it was just Metallica again. Um, you know, I wish, I genuinely wish that there was a younger metal band breaking through the, a, a kind of interesting pop artists like Miley Cyrus might want to do something with that would I think that would be cool like we talked before and we'll probably talk about it in a bit actually about how you know I grew up and we all grew up watching Fred Durst on a stage with Christina Aguilera at the MTV Awards like metal used to have this kind of like significance where it was being talked about in the same in the same tones as uh, you know major pop stars and everything else so anytime that can still happen I think it's really cool if I'm being totally honest I would rather hear Miley Cyrus just do a rock album of original material because I think there's a chance that if she got the right people in, it'll be really fucking good. But um, I'm going to listen to it. I'm, you know, I could see her being pretty cool on some of these tracks. So good for her. Mm. Good for her. Uh, in not really news, but kind of just a what the fuck, we're all uh, old now. Uh, <laughs> chocolate starfish and the hot dog flavoured water turned 20 this past weekend. I mean, I knew this day was coming, but to kind of sit here and think that this album is now as old now as like the first Iron Maiden album was in 2000 is fucking mind blowing to me. Don't um, say that. That's such a weird thing to say. <laughs> but it is. But it is. I thought that was really old. Do you know what I mean? Like when Chocolate Starfish came out and you said to me about, the, if you said something to me about the first Iron Maiden, I'd, I'd be like, I don't care. It's old. I wasn't even born. Yeah, yeah, it's I true. Remember, I remember when Nevermind turned 20 a couple of well, a couple of years ago, nine years ago. And I remember just being like, 
I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> Never mind 20. But I was at like, I was at least like, at least I was a kid. Like I was young as fuck when Nevermind came out. So I was like, I kind of remember it coming out. And I remember the stuff, but I was like, I was sort of a bit young. Whereas this, I was a fucking adult when this came out. I was old enough to be a sneery metal snob <laughs> and be like, boo. There's when- people who can drink now who were two years old when this record came out. If you're American and you were born when this came out, you still you're still not old enough to drink at some stage. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just amazing, just amazing. I, I, um, and uh, I think we've mentioned before. Obviously, we had a big thing about the year 2000 in a recent issue. Um, you can actually read my interview with uh, Wes Borland, um, and it's got some stuff from Fred Durst in there as well about Chocolate Starfish on the Metal Hammer website right now. Um, this is. You know, there's other albums that were really important to me in terms of getting into heavy music and shaping my music taste. Most of them all came out in this period, actually, weirdly. Um, but if I, had to, if I had to kind of dilute it down to one album that changed everything, it would be Chocolate Starfish. Um, this is a record that I only went and picked up because I'd heard... It might not have even actually been when the album itself came out, but I, I heard it because The Undertaker was using Rolling as his entrance theme in wwe and i thought wow that song sounds good it's like hip-hop but really heavy um and i can't the only thing i had to compare it to was like rage against the machine which i listened to a little bit of uh, and then i went and listened to shortcut starfish and the rest was history and dare i say it still stands up now as an absolute fucking classic i mean the first handful of tracks on this album hot dog my generation full nelson my way rolling living it up all one after the other i mean that reads like a greatest hits album doesn't it this this album's hit rate is ridiculous mm. yeah i loved it i heard rolling on radio one that was how i knew about rolling and then my dad bought me the album i was off school sick and he knew that i would like it and he brought it home and i was so excited i i mean i i think i got to the point like i i bought the other two limp biscuit albums the day they came out Three dollar bill and significant other, so I was like bang into Limp Biscuit. But by the time this came out, I was a little bit older and I was a bit like, mm, and I was a bit more kind of, I'm not really into this sort of thing anymore. So I sort of left it for a bit, and then I remember hearing it and being like, fucking stupid band, and humming all of this. So and then eventually like buying it and having to sort of sneak it past my friends who are all into like hard, oh we like hardcore and we're like into we're like into underground emo stuff now, like fuck new metal, and I would like play it when no one was around and just be like this is actually really good and it's good now to be able to just go yeah it's fucking excellent this record it's really fucking excellent um and not have to sort of pretend like it's not and i'm glad that people like most people now i think have got over the fact that Lib biscuit are like like the when fred durst was omnipotent and he was in everything. He was in Kerrang! every week. He was in Hammer every month. He was in The Enemy and The Melody Maker. He was on MTV. He was on top of the fucking pops. He was in the tabloids. He was everywhere. He was literally everywhere. And, you know, I know a lot of people got pretty shirty about that. But now that all that has died down and we're just left with the album 20 years later, fucking mental, um, I'm glad that people have sort of reevaluated Limp Biscuit and will go, yeah, they were actually really fucking good at what they do. And, pretty unique as well so yeah i think so i mean it's interesting 
talking to the the band um about it well wes in particular because uh they kind of saw themselves as kind of having one foot in hip-hop and one foot in metal and actually even though that might sound like a bit of an other thing to say i think when you kind of look at the fact that you know they had exhibit on this album and everything else um I think you could kind of make a case for that because if I, I, there's probably never been a metal album that's brought in so many kind of hip hop fans and pop fans and everything else uh, in the way that this album did um, while still kind of being centered in the metal world. Um, the success of this record as well, I think is something that sometimes gets overlooked because a week later, if you can believe it, uh, Linkin Park dropped hybrid theory. <laughs> what a time to be alive this was. Uh, and so I think sometimes hybrid theory success overshadows chocolate starfish a little bit, but this is an album that sold a million copies in its first week in its first week on sale. It sold a million copies. It sold uh, 400,000 copies in its first day. That is fucking unheard of. I think it might've been, uh, yeah, it was the largest first week sales debut. Yeah. The best first week sales for a rock album, Ever in the United States, no, like no rock album had ever sold more in the first week. That is that's fucking insane. Um, and yeah, like you said, Steve, this band were everywhere at the time, like everybody knew who Fred Durst was. Uh, and it was just kind of almost like the last time heavy music produced a band that really did that. I mean, you could kind of say, I guess, Slipknot kind of did the same thing, although they'd never quite been as kind of mainstream baiting um but it was just an insane time and uh yeah i think this album still stands up and i love it 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 any final thoughts on chocolate starfish no i mean it's amazing that limp biscuit are the band that got you into paul bearer who we're about to talk about essentially. <laughs> <laughs> i was the same like it was hybrid theory and chocolate starfish were my you know number two records at that time and then corn stuff and then it all broke open from there but yeah, yeah. anyone that says new metal uh new metal didn't do anything for metal world the ed- editor and deputy editor of metal hammer came in through that door so <laughs> there you go so, um yes so hybrid themes literally released so it'll be next week that you'll be doing all this with hybrid theory presumably yeah i reckon we probably will i reckon uh, we probably will I'm suddenly busy next week, unfortunately, guys. But... Hybrid Theory is one of the best records ever made in the universe ever, Steve. So don't even talk to me if you don't like it. Agreed. The best record with the word hybrid or theory. And I can't think of any others uh, with that title. Anyway, um, I don't want to look at you right now. I don't even want to look at you. But um, th- this is this is the era that, you know, I don't want to be like, oh, I'm better than the old days. But in terms of try- like trying to make people understand just how prominent heavy music was in the mainstream in this era and why ultimately we are so far off that right now you had limp biscuit selling a million copies in the first week on sale and then a week later you have fucking hybrid theory coming out i mean it's it's it was just an insane time and uh, yeah, i'm sure we'll talk a bit about hybrid theory next week um let's talk about some proper metal now it's about as metal as it gets metal as it was first intended to be to be performed <laughs> It is very hot. Uh, we're going to do the brand new album from the excellent Paul Bearer. It's called Forgotten Days. It's out this Friday via the uh, Always Ace Nuclear Blast Records. Um, this is, in fact, their fourth album all in, I think. But for many people, this is 
the second album for which uh, they might have been on a lot of people's radar because it kind of felt like Heartless, which came out in 2017, was a big, big breakthrough album for them. Uh, they've widely been credited as one of the most exciting young doom metal bands in the scene today. Uh, and I think this album's really good. I've been enjoying it. Um, it's uh, got quite a lot to live up to, I think. It's not easy for a band of this ilk to kind of break through in a meaningful way. Um, and me and you were talking a bit about this, Steve. I, I kind of feel like with doom metal, and I know that there are a lot of other layers to this band, which we'll talk about as well. There's some, there's had some progressive elements in there and all the rest of it. But when you talk about kind of doom metal, I think the problem with a lot of these bands is that the art form was perfected by the first band to ever do it. Yeah. Black Sabbath perfected this style of metal. You can't do better than Tony Iommi. It's just not possible. And there's been many that have come close, of course. There's some brilliant, brilliant and, and genre-defining doom metal bands. But that's the bar you've got to meet. So you've got to be pretty fucking good to, to kind of merit any uh, recognition, I think. And I think Paul Bearer are one of those bands. Um, so, yeah, what do you think of this record, Steve? Let's go with you first, because I mentioned you. Um, I, well, I, just to sort of agree with everything you've just said, you're right. It's a fucking difficult bar to live up to. I thought um, Heartless was excellent. And I'm not a massive, I mean, I'm, I'm going to have to sort of confess that I have a bit of, I wouldn't say a tin ear, but I'm not a huge fan of endless modern doom and sort of stoner rock bands. I'm not sure that the genre itself um, has a lot that it can, like you say, like you have to add in other elements. I think Vile Creature, when that album came out, I was like, okay, this is, they're doing something different with that style. Um, Mammoth Weed Wizard Bastard are another band, I think, who are doing something a bit different with it. Um, Elephant Tree, whose album came out earlier this year, are really cool new band who take that type of music and doing something really kind of fresh and interesting with it. And I think Paul Bearer are one of those bands that do that as well. Um, the most sort of important thing for me on a Paul Bearer record, I think, is how they marry the stomp and the, the kind of that slow lumbering riffola with really kind of achingly melodic sort of sunny melodies and i think this record is good but i feel like there's sort of all the elements it's like you're cooking a dinner and all of the 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 thing you need for the recipe is all chopped up correctly and put in the pot properly but you just don't quite cook it for long enough um i think there's a they're slightly lacking in the choruses that made the last album and the the kind of the songs. I'm not sure the songwriting is as good on this record as the last one. I still think it's good. And I still think there are moments on it that are, are amazing. Um, but I'm not quite sure that it is touching the bar that they set on the last record, if I'm being honest. Interesting. What, what do you think, Hel? I agree with you. I prefer the last record. And I've been trying to think about why. And I think it was probably because it was a bit more progressive, whereas this one, straight out of, wait, straight off the bat, that's the phrase, mm. goes more 70s in the way that you were just talking about, in the Sabbath kind of 70s, fuzzier, warmer style. Like, it's more retro, and I think I prefer the last one because it felt like it was doing something more new with the retro style. 
basically what you said. Um, where I think this one is very affecting is when you know some of the story behind the record, which is that they're talking about family and loss. And Brett, the singer, talks about his grandma and like her struggle with Alzheimer's disease, basically. And Forgotten Days is named um, after that opening track, which discusses her loss of identity and memories. And there's some more stuff in there about um, family and loss and um, one of the band members losing their mother while Paul, Paul Bear were kind of starting out. And so emotionally, I think you can really feel a lot of that coming through on the record, through the way, especially Brett's vocals, the way that he sings is very, very affecting. So, yeah, I think maybe for me, it's not quite as to my taste as Heartless was, but I have a lot of time for what they're doing here. Yeah, I think that's a good point about the uh, the more emotional kind of layers of it because I do feel like it's, I mean, it's obviously a heavy album, it's doom metal, but I feel like there, there is a kind of melancholic heaviness underpinning this one. Um, I mean, we mentioned Sabbath. One of the things that I loved love most about Tony Iommi's writing is that, yes, he's got these big, just tremendously heavy, weighty riffs, but there's also these real kind of emotional melodies that he wields through them. And I think that's one of the things I really loved about Heartless. There was a lot of that going on there that um, really attracted me to it. And there's some of that stuff on here as well. I think like Riverbed in particular is a really warm track that I really like. Um, but it just feels like a slightly darker album. Uh, definitely less of the proggier kind of elements of it, like I said. It feels like it's just kind of a more weighty kind of downwards facing album. Um, which maybe isn't as easy to get straight into. Uh, One thing I did notice about this straight away again was kind of like the sonics on the album. Uh, It just sounds really old, really analog, really rich, which really kind of suits the format. Um, And I really like that. I am someone who likes the kind of crisper, more um, kind of stadium-sized production of a lot of modern metal. But I thought for this, this is just uh, produced in such a more uh, suited way to to the music. Um, and I really like that. Um, and I mean, I think it's a good album. I think it's a, a, a very good album. I should I should say as well that in the uh, in the latest issue of Metal Hammer that's out right now, the ace Rich Hobson has given this album a nine out of ten. He absolutely loves it. Um, he says Forgotten Days captures a band not only at the top of their game but also a genre. Paul Bearer building a legacy where misery doesn't just love company; it's compulsory. Um, mm-hmm. So he really loved this record, and I think that it will do a lot for them because I can see. Uh, you know, for a metal band, I can see this record um, bringing in a lot of fans for them in a way that maybe Heartless wouldn't have in the same way. But for me personally, it's not probably quite on the level of Heartless. I'd agree with both of you. But at the same time, I do quite like what they've done with it because I can appreciate it's a slightly different tact for them. Um, and yeah, there's tracks on here I love. I mentioned Riverbed. Um I really love Quicksand of Existing. It's got that kind of driving, rolling, rumbling groove to it. That's a little bit different. Um, so there's there's plenty of stuff on here I'm really enjoying, but it just feels like a slightly different shade mood-wise to what they were doing before. Yeah, I think that when they added in those parts of this kind of grander, more psychedelic parts, um, I mean, there's stuff on it, I think, you know, like there's obviously a a kind of, let's say, a, a, 
a more um, melancholic darkness to it. Like a song like Stasis, actually very kind of analog Black Sabbathy early metal sounding, but really reminded me more of grunge bands like Soundgarden or Alice in Chains, just because of how dark everything felt. But then it's far more interesting to me. Like there's a song on it called, hold on, what's the really long song? Silver Wings. And when the, the when that becomes when that they do go into that more psychedelic and the, the strings come in it towards the end of that it's 12 minutes long and the last sort of few minutes of it is absolutely beautiful and incredible and really stirring and i think there's not enough of that on the record like there was on heartless for it to be really dynamically interesting and i think you have to be a real like a real fan of this type of music. Um, I think if you are a fan of this type of music, you'll probably absolutely love it because they're very, very good at like, you know, like I say, the riffs, mm. there's no doubt that they can write an incredible riff and there's no... Yeah, we've, not, uh, we've not even really properly talked about the riffs. Like to be clear, the riffs are fucking big and great like, as they should be on this album. They're exactly what you would want. And, you know, again, like, they're not just doing... Well, it is I only worship, but it's not, you know, like it's not a kind of real basic level, like, oh, this is what Black Sabbath are meant to sound like. So, you know, it feels like those riffs are thought about and, you know, and I can hear, like I say, Jerry Cantrell and Kim Tail and people like that in, in the record as well. But it's just when they really stretch their dynamic range, I, I feel like the songs work better, you know. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's like it's absolutely not a bad record by any stretch of the imagination. I just think it's something which I don't listen to that much of a lot. And it's got to be really, really good for it to really grip me. And this didn't as much, but I still think it's good. Yeah. I think, I think that's fair. Um, you know, I still, as we said before, they are definitely one of the most interesting and exciting and most promising young bands doing this kind of thing right now. So if you are a fan of this type of music, obviously, if you like big old riffs, obviously make sure you go and check this album out. Uh, but there's some other layers on here as well that might uh, might uh, appeal to you regardless. Um, so, yeah, Paul Bearer, Forgotten Days, out this Friday. It is good. Um, there's also a new Seven Dust album out this Friday. There's a new Devin Townsend live album out this Friday. A new Hammerfall live album out this Friday. So different, different. I nearly did an office quite then. I can't help it. Different metal for different needs. Sorry. This week, I don't know if it really, I should mention it because it's not really metal. But the new clipping album, really. Oh, is that this week? That's what you want to listen to. Visions oh. of being burnt by clipping. They're pretty much the best band in the world. Um, is it that metal? I mean, I suppose not really, but like it's fucking heavy. And it's. I think if you, if you like kind of alternative, abrasive music, and if you kind of like, you know, I just talked about that kind of production I like. If you like that kind of higher end production that the likes of Code Orange utilise, I think it's definitely worth giving that clipping album a listen. We've got some open-minded listeners there up for anything. Go listen uh, to the clipping album. That it's absolutely staggeringly brilliant, that record. I'm looking forward to hearing that. I really like clipping. Um, they didn't have Mammal last year as well. Also, a new Faithless album, if you like that kind of thing. So, <laughs> just as good. Yeah. Just as good. Slightly different. Let's do some questions from our lovely reader group, facebook.com slash Metal Hammer Readers. If you want to get involved with the best community in metal today, 
Steve, why don't you do this first one, seeing as you're such a fan? <laughs> How long have Maiden left album-wise? Charlie George Brady asked that question. So, um, how long? How many? How many more albums are we going to get from Iron Maiden? Is that sort of? I think that's the. I think that's the the gist of it. That's a hard one. That's a really hard one. I would say. What do you say? Hopefully none, because I don't. <laughs> do you not want to have a magazine to write for? <laughs> <laughs> okay, hopefully to fifty. <laughs> Um, one every yeah. month go on <laughs> I, I think only only they know only they really know I mean you know I saw Maiden twice on this last album's uh, tour cycle sorry the Legacy of the Beast tour I was fucking gutted I didn't get to see them again this year um, and while the kind of whole like they're better than ever thing is a thing people love to trot out about older bands you know at the very least Bruce Dickinson's voice still sounds fucking amazing um, and that was the best set list I've seen Maiden over 20 times, I think. And that was the best set list I've ever seen them play. And one of the best kind of shows I've ever seen them do. So I have no interest whatsoever in Maiden calling it quits anytime soon. That said, just as a matter of fact, most of the band are now into their sixties. Nico unbelievably is knocking on 70, which just doesn't seem possible for how great he still is behind the kit. Um, it depends. It's been five years since the book of souls now. So you know, by Maiden timelines, we should, they should, I think, be kind of gearing into new album mode, I guess. But obviously the pandemic's ruined everything, so we just don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we could get a couple. Um, fuck knows. They might just keep going and going and going and we could get many, many more. We'll just have to wait and see. But In my 30s, 60s doesn't actually feel very old anymore. It's very scary that it doesn't feel old. No, and it's not. And like I said, they are as long as they can still do it live. I have got no issue with I made in carrying on as long as they fucking feel like. Even if they can't, though, like you obviously get older bands now who can't necessarily tour but are still recording. And obviously, like, um, you know, uh, Black Sabbath have stopped touring, but Ozzy's still making music. And who knows? Maybe that is the future. Uh, yeah, maybe. Although for Maiden, for me, their live shows are such a big part of what they do. And the idea of there being like an Eddie on an album cover that you can never see on a stage and all that stuff would make me a bit sad, I think. But you're yeah. right. It's totally up to them if, if they want to do that. I am definitely confident we'll get at least more one more Maiden album, though. Like, I've, there's no indication anywhere in the Maiden camp that they've, you know, that's not in the plan at some point down the line. Um... Right, well, let's do another one. Let's do another one. Uh, Sam Welsh asks, what riff can you not get out of your head after hearing it? I've been humming the riff from Pimple Map by In Flames ever since I first heard it. I hope that doesn't mean you heard it like 20 years ago and you've literally never stopped. <laughs> that sounds quite worrying. That's like a special kind of tinnitus. Yeah, just like, you're right, Sam. <laughs> oh, God. Um. But yeah, fucking great riff. Great, great riff. Uh, I just, again, Sabbath came straight to mind for me here. Anytime I go back and listen to songs like Sabbath Cadabra, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, A National Acrobat, obviously Paranoid, Iron Man, et cetera, et cetera. Like those riffs, again, the genius of Iomi, it's not just about big riffs. They're big riffs that burrow into your brain and just don't ever leave. I don't know. I mean, for me, it's just whatever I've been listening to recently. So I've been listening to Sordid Pink loads, 
which I've just got really obsessed with. They used to be Destiny Potato. Their album came out a couple of weeks ago and every track has like really, really catchy riffs on it and they just keep sticking in my head. And uh, there's a band from London called Ventenna that I've got an album out soon. Um, and I know the singer, so he sent it to me and that's got this song on that I can't remember the name of, Uselessly, that's got this riff on that just keeps going round and round in my head as well. So I think it's whatever I've listened to recently is like, if it's good, then it gets stored in there and comes back. And then you get to irritate everyone by just, like you said, walking around and just humming and singing fragments of songs, which is great. Mjord by Kevin Attacks and Matthew Ross me. Well, I was just listening to that before we started. See? Most recent C. And 43% burn as well. Like by the Dillinger Escape Plan. That's really easy to just go. And you can make it seem like you're clearing your throat when you're doing it as well. So you don't see. That's a good one. You have to explain the da 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 bit, but then if you just go, <clears throat> uh, you're still doing the riff. Perfect. But it's good. It's a good riff. It is a good riff. Yeah. It is a good riff. I should say, I mean, we talked about Limp Bizkit as well. Wes and riffs always get stuck in my head. Um, yeah. One that did come to mind is that any time I listen to Soulway Firth off the Last In My Album, it Love is some kind of fucking driving slower riff that comes in is genuinely one of my favourite Slipknot riffs they've ever done. I love I it. fucking love that song. This is a very boring story, but I went on a pandemic day out to a, a wetland centre, which is like a place where they, birds live. <laughs> and they had this section, and it was all based on Solway Firth in um, Scotland. And I was like, oh my gosh, Solway Firth. That was very exciting for me. They also had a special <laughs> goose called a Svalbard goose. <laughs> Okay, good. <laughs> what else did they have? <laughs> they, they had a, they had a may, mayhem sparrow. <laughs> <laughs> it would have made it more exciting, to be and honest. A cannibal corpse grouse. <laughs> it wasn't the most thrilling day out. The cannibal corpse dove. You're me. Fine. Stay I don't on. know. Let's do another one. I'll, uh, I'll read out this next one because I feel like I'm... It's almost like David Inglis knew that I had the two biggest Deftones fans at Metal Hammer on the podcast with me this week because he has asked, loved your recent articles and discussions on Deftones. So what are your top three favourite Deftones songs and why? I'm going to go straight to Elle because she loves listing things. I do. Oh, I think it's because I love Deftones. See, I hate this question. I love this question because I love this question because it's about Deftones, but I fucking hate lists and putting things in order. So, okay... I'm going to go with Passenger because White Pony's amazing and Maynard James Keenan sings on it and it's just got this otherworldly, mystical, amazing, massive, epic feel to it. I just love Passenger. Like, any time I get to listen to that, it just makes me excited every single listen. I'm going to go with Battle Axe from the self-titled because... That record wasn't as loved by people as other records, but as we were kind of talking about with new metal, it came at a time in my life in the early 2000s where a lot of stuff was going on. And, you know, I was kind of growing up and I just love the song. It's so dramatic. It's got this really driving, repetitive riff. Chino's vocals are really cool on it. They're just 
really kind of rich and dark and winding and the song doesn't let up it's just constant all the way through like I said this kind of constant grind it just goes through it all the way through and I just love that kind of atmosphere that it builds because Deftones is so about that atmosphere and then thinking of a third one that was really hard so I kind of just pick one from Ohms because Again, most recently biased, but I've just been listening to Ohms like over and over and over again. And I love Genesis. I love the fact that it comes straight out, the first track of the record, how he's kind of talking. We spoke a little bit in the feature in the magazine about how it's a little bit about some of his personal transformation he's been through in the last few years and kind of looking at his life and having a bit of therapy. And he kind of goes into the song like kind of a bit angry and like um, fragmented about his thoughts and feelings. And then he comes out with can you taste your life balanced? And it's kind of this almost like rebirth awakening feel. And like the sound of it is so big. You've got kind of the synths from Frank and like the massive riffs from Abe and it literally feels like the birth of a universe. And I love that kind of big sound. Very, very excellent. Uh, My three. And excellently argued choices. I knew you'd stick a new one in there. I knew it. <laughs> Can help myself. Uh, all right, Steve, go on in. Your, your, your three. I don't like this question. It's horrible. Um, I said. Yeah. Right. Between favourites. You were right. Um, it's just this is difficult as fuck. Um, so I'm going to deliberately pick three quite obscure ones. I think just because I mean because they're all they're all so fucking good. Um, I'm going to say Zerchis from Saturday Night Wrist which is an incredibly underrated record, I think, which is far better than people give it credit for. Although, you know, there it's there's it's not perfect. It's probably the least perfect Deftones record, but uh, there's still some really amazing songs in it. I think that's them doing slow and anthemic and melancholic as well as they've ever done it in their entire career. If that song was on White Pony, and I think it would fit comfortably on White Pony, people would be talking about it as like, you know, it's to me, it's even better than digital, something like Digital Bath, which is, you know, a classic Death Tone song. Um, I'm gonna say, I knew you said Damone, the secret track from Around the Fur, which is amazing. Um, but Die the Food, Die the Flu from Around the Fur, Around the Fur is my favorite Death Tones record, and most people just think of Be Quiet and Drive and My Own Summer from that record, and maybe Head Up as well, but. The whole thing is amazing. I've not seen them do Die the Flu. It's such a weird song, such a weird disorientating song, which is like really kind of quiet at some points and kind of creepy. And then it goes into this massive chorus and then it gets really heavy as well. It's just all the things that Deftones do really brilliantly. And I'm going to pick for the kind of the, the banger needed, I'm going to pick Teething from the Crow City of Angels 2 soundtrack, which I think might have been the first Deftones song that I ever heard. The first time I ever heard Chino was on Wicked by Korn from Life is PG, but Teething, I've got the Crow City of Angels soundtrack, which is not as good as the classic, much like the film, not as good as the original Crow soundtrack, which is amazing. But it has got White Zombie on it, it's got Filter on it, it's got Nick Cave on it, it's got um, Korn on it, it's got Deftones, obviously it's got Deftones on it. And Deftones are in the film as well. The first time I ever saw Deftones was them playing Teething in the cinema when I went to watch The Crow 2 City of Angels. And I was like, wow, this band are amazing. It was back when Chino still had dreads and stuff. And it's just an absolute slammer of a song. And if I was to put a bonus, it's not really a Deftones song, but their cover of Savory, 
my jaw box that they did with far is fucking amazing as well so there's three and a cover wow incredible choice as well i didn't know that about uh the crow two uh, that they're in that I had no idea. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen that film um, as much as I love the first one. Uh, I'm a big old basic bitch. So I've got Diamond Eyes because I love that track deeply. Um, I'm not, any, I mean, I'm not even a big massive Deftones fan, certainly not compared to you two. But that's one of the songs that when it came out, I was like, that's one of the most seductive choruses I think I've ever heard. Um, I've got Change in the House of Flies, which is obviously one of the biggest songs. So it's not exactly that, uh, that deep. And then I've got Swerve City because it's a big bouncy banger and I just love it. So that's the new metal kid in me coming out there. So that's my choice. Uh, I suspect they're not quite as, uh, you know. There's some everyone in Deftones though. That's the thing, like all their songs are good and they're all so interesting and so different. Like I kind of feel, I know we've talked about this and some people are more into Deftones than other people, but I just feel like there's literally whatever music you like, you will find something in Deftones that you can find something in. Agreed. Uh, do you want to take the next question, El? Yes. Kevin Rowan asks, well, he says, I've been listening to a lot of Wolves in the Throne Room recently, and it's fair to say they like a long song. What's your top three epic metal songs, i.e. songs that last longer than seven minutes or so? Stephen? Top three. Um, I should say, Wolves in the Throne Room, fucking great band. Excellent choice. Are a fucking great band, yeah, for sure. Um, Oh, man, this is a really, again, this is a really hard one. You might have to, I might have to come through to you in bits and bobs here, but I'd say... um, Locust Star by Neurosis is one. I think that's fucking amazing. Like that is as intense and heavy over an elongated period of time as heavy music gets. Like fucking unbelievable. Like really, really brilliant. It's probably, and it's, well, not even probably, definitely is my favourite Neurosis album as well. So that would be one. Um... I'm going to say the Outlaw Torn as well. Oh, fuck, fuck. Why didn't I think of that? I've got Metallica track, but I'm going to change it now. What, to the Outlaw Torn? Hold on, let me just chat. Just ignore me. That's a brilliant shout. Go on. Yeah, I love the Outlaw. I mean, obviously, it's S&M. It's taken on its kind of its own life on the S&M version. So I probably would say the S&M version of the Outlaw Torn. But I remember getting Load, and I am, you know, a staunch defender of, of Load. Uh, I think it's good. Um, and I remember The Outlaw Torn being one of the times I was like, there's a couple of the longest songs on that album, Bleeding Me being another one that I think is amazing. But The Outlaw Torn is just such a fucking great song. It's such a great song. And, you know, if people want to argue semantics about whether it's, you know, quote unquote metal enough, I don't know. But I really don't care because it's just an, it's just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And fuck, oh, no, come back to me. Eleanor, do a couple for me, please. Uh, okay, well, I had most recency bias on this, I'm afraid. Um, so I picked Leprous, The Sky Is Red, because that song is just incredible. That's from their last record. And it just goes off into like the most amazing places. It's really kind of like... Um, avant-garde progressive metal that takes you on this journey but is so full of melody that it's 
never boring and it's so rich. I think I've talked about it before. That's a really, really cool song. And then I've gone with The Ocean and Jurassic Cretaceous. Cretaceous? Cretaceous? Cretaceous. Probably Jurassic Cretaceous. And it's got um, Jonas from Catatonia on it. And that's just a really cool song as well. I think I've gone on about the ocean record a bit on the podcast. It's a really good record. And then a bit of a throwback. Um, I've gone for Opeth, The Drapery Falls, because I was just obsessed with that song. It's probably the first time that I heard progressive metal, although at that time it was just called death metal because Opeth were just death metal. And um, I just remember somebody put it on a compilation CD for me at the time when you would burn CDs. And that's just like, this is the best song. So epic, like a bit gothic, like windswept made me think of just being in a castle or something. I just uh, love that song. Still love it. Um, love You to Death by Type of Negative in there is my third one as well, which is what having listened to you talk about kind of windswept gothic loveliness. Um, yeah. Typo do long songs, probably as good as anyone ever did long songs, I reckon. So, yeah, that that would be my third one. That's a great choice. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think of a couple of those bands but, yeah, you mentioned. Wonderful stuff. Um, I mean, Maiden came straight to mind for me. Uh, originally, I was going to say Passchendaele because it's one of my very favourite Maiden songs. I would have shouted out Red and the Black as well as a particularly long and brilliant Maiden song. But then I double-checked and I realised that my favourite Iron Maiden song and one of the greatest heavy metal songs ever written Hello Be Thy Name is just over seven minutes. So that would be my absolute number one shout. Um, I should say I am just sticking to uh, rock and metal songs here so that I'm not um, just filling it with like dead mouse choices or something. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was good at, I instantly, I just thought, um, I thought, right, well, Metallica have done some long songs. One's their all-time classic long song. It's going to be one. I didn't even think to go to load because Bleeding Me would absolutely be one of my choices. It's in my top probably three Metallica songs of all time. Um, I agree that the Outlaw Torn is the other major, major one from load you could pick. And I would say it's de- Outlaw Torn is definitely a more epic song overall. No doubt about it. But um, I think Bleeding Me has just got that tiny bit more of a raw emotional edge in it that I like. Um, and so I'd pick that. Um, and I was really hoping that Imperium by Machine Heads would make it in, but it's like, oh it, man, but it won't, it won't, because it's six minutes and 42 seconds, the fuckers. Uh, but what, um, what about Davidian? Sorry, <laughs> what about Davidian? <laughs> nah, Davidian ain't near. Um, but uh, but Halo is, and I fucking love that Machine Head song as well, so I'm gonna pick Halo because that's I entirely the- forgot about Machine Head, and they actually have quite a lot of long songs, yeah. Yes, they do. I've also just been looking and I have to retract one of mine because Locust Star just falls under the six minute mark. Oh, wow. so I have the doorway from Times of Grace instead, which is the other brilliant of the two narrates, like big epics on the actually a lot, most of the stuff on those two albums are epic, but that's on Times of Grace, which is very, very much a brilliant record as well. So, yeah, nice, nice. Uh, Joe Fleischer asks, have you ever seen a band near Halloween? Well, oh, have you ever seen a band near Halloween, as in the gig took place near Halloween, dress in costume? Have you ever worn a costume to a gig other than the standard black T-shirt and jeans? That's not a costume. That's our life, man. Um, uh, go on. I saw Fear Factory on New Year's Eve. Uh, New Year's Eve. I saw Fear Factory on Halloween and they all dressed as skeletons. 
and Gary Newman came out and did cards with them and they had pumpkins on the stage. That was a laugh. I also dressed up uh, as a clown for the first ever gig in the UK by the Insane Clown Posse in 1997. Wow, Steve, that's amazing. Do you have photos? No. I didn't know you went to that. Yeah. LA2. Insane Clown Posse. It was quite an experience. Did you get any, uh, what's their drink called? There you go. Yeah, it was disgusting. It was like being dipped in tar. I was on the, I was on like the, me and my mates got on the barrier and we, and they also had like a stage invasion at the end and they were just like, there was this massive crate, like two huge crates just filled with these bottles and they were just pouring them in people's mouths and, and pouring like, my mate is taller than, I'm six foot four, my mate's like six foot six and he stood in the barrier next to me and at one point he just opened his mouth and Violent J, or Shaggy Too Dope, one of them, got a bottle and just squeezed it of this, like, rank cola, and it squeezed out the bottle, whole two litres of it, smashed him in the face, just went over all of us. It was, we were going back on the train, and it was disgusting. We were covered in shit. All of our makeup had come off. We, like, fucking dyed our hair, painted our faces. We were wearing, like, fucking clown things and stuff. Yeah. Good so good. I haven't got I haven't got anything as uh, dramatic as that. I mean, I did think of the uh, the legendary Metal Hammer Halloween party in 2012. I think it was that um, a ton of bands played. I remember yeah. seeing the Defiled, fancy dressed as just women or, or people in dresses, and uh, that was that was an experience. I dressed as a pirate for that. Um, I went to see Creeper in Southampton on Halloween 2015. And I dressed as the Joker. I looked pretty sick, for being honest. Um, and I thought. I thought this counts, L. Me and you went to Voodoo, uh, the Voodoo Rock Night in London in Halloween 2016 and saw a bit of skin dread when I was dressed as The Undertaker and you were dressed as a cat. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that, yeah. Um, Voodoo in London always has really good Halloween nights and I also went there another year dressed, I think, as a cat with probably the same cat ear headband and saw, um, uh, what are they called? The British band that... Oh, you know the ones I'm talking about. You... I don't. <laughs> the British band. No, the small British band who were like, oh, they have like Londony accents, and <laughs> you were friends with one of them. Many, ba many bands from London do. <laughs> you were. <friends laughs> what are they called? I'm friends with one of them. Yeah, you know what they're called. I'm sure you knew what they're called. They had like a song about oh, what is it? TRC. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> Team UK. They had the song Team UK. TRC. Shout out Charlie Wilson. Yeah. Oh yeah, I know him too. But there you go. Now, now works at the uh, the excellent Monolith Studios producing bands. Bit of info about that on the metal scene. Yeah, um, so I, I went as a cat to that. But apart from that, I was really struggling to think of any. I went. Around the early 2000s, I went to see Zombina and the Skeletones a few times, and they always dress up like in costumes. But I can't remember if I saw them on Halloween or not. But they always wear kind of Halloweeny type clothes. Fair, fair. What a lovely time. Should we do one more question? Do you want to read it out, uh, Stephen? Yes, I do. That is what I want to do. Um, is there any value in subscribing to a band? Is Patreon the future? Uh, that's from Marco LG. Um, well, this is obviously in response to uh, While She Sleeps' his new thingamajig, I reckon. Sleep Society. Sleep Society, yes. What do we think? Is there any 
Uh, is there any value in subscribing to a band? Do we think that uh, this is from kind of a, a con, uh, I was going to say a customer then, that's a bit wanky, of a fan? <laughs> is there any value from a fan perspective? Is, is Do we think Patreon is a good long-term way for bands to make money in the light of, well, not selling albums and currently not touring? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, uh, my other podcasts that I do, we have a Patreon page, which is a nice little extra source of income, but we have to obviously give people extra bonus content um, for signing up for it. So I think if it's, but, uh, you know, like if you as a band can offer your fans something that they're not going to get anywhere else. I mean, talking about, say, Death Tones had a Patreon page and you'd get like a, a demo of a song or something once a month, I'd fucking sign up for that for sure. So yeah, I think it depends on what you, um, you've got to want to support bands that you, you love. Surely you don't, you know, at the moment. Um, but at the same time, I don't think it's too much to ask for something back for that really. So if they're offering you something good, why not? Just check it, look at what they're offering. And if you like it, obviously it's, it's going to a place that, you, you know, that, going straight to them isn't it i agree yeah it's a bit like a 2020 version of a fan club basically mm. it's like you used to sign up you used to send a little check or something in a post in an envelope and every now and then you get a magazine or a badge or a sticker or something but now we've got a lot more resource there's things people can do that are a lot more interactive and a lot cooler than just kind of having a badge although badges are cool too and yeah it's like you said it's going directly to the person so you know that when you're subscribing they're getting exactly that from you um so why not i guess the only drawbacks there are probably a few drawbacks but there was something you know amanda palmer the artist yeah she did for her patreon fan base there was a big weird internet scandal where she paid a writer to write a feature about her and then that feature was provided to her subscribers. But the feature was very, um, what's the way to put it? Uncritical, but also just very kind of, um, you know, like when it's a bit like propaganda, but I don't want to say propaganda about a band because it's not like we're talking about a government or something. But it was someone she had paid to essentially be her friend and write nice things about her. And again, if you're a fan, maybe that's all you need and you just kind of want something that is about the person that you love. But it wasn't very interesting content, let's say, because it was very predictable and there was nothing in it that you wouldn't have had. So something like that, I think, is less interesting. But something like you said, access to demos or Q&As with people, I would say, would be more interesting. So I guess it depends on the kind of content. Definitely. I mean, I you know, I don't play guitar. Um, and so a lot of the bands that are doing stuff like guitar playthroughs and things like that don't appeal to me personally. But if there's things like exclusive merchandise and things like that, exclusive vinyl or that kind of cool stuff, love that shit. So would subscribe. Would subscribe. Yeah. All right, everybody. That is it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, we always appreciate it. We'll be back next week where I imagine Elle and I will probably find some excuses to wax lyrical about hybrid theory amongst many other things have a lovely week everybody look after yourselves and uh don't forget to pick up the latest issue of metal hammer if you haven't already and we'll see you next week goodbye everyone goodbye bye now